talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. The showers are helping the lawn, but making the backyard poop and scoop a little more challenging. Here's Scott Thompson. That's his world. (laughs) So the life of a 15-year-old. Or is he 14? I don't know. Turning 15. Something like that. All right, good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board, Diane and Dave in the newsroom. And you can always send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, Bulldogs lost last night. Uh, series now in Windsor's favor, 2-1. to one. Watched it on TSN. Very cool to see that. Uh, and very exciting hockey. So uh, here's the fingers crossed as we move forward uh, next game on Friday. Uh, but, uh, yeah, 22-game winning streak, I believe it was, uh, has finally uh, obviously come to an end. And uh, the Bulldogs uh, getting a good fight as we uh, head into the OHL, or as we're in the OHL final. All right, also in the news today, Barton Street, worst road ever. There you go. All right, congratulations. Uh, I think it was the person from the CAA that said, you know, this often – um, um, I guess gives a gentle shove to to uh, municipalities and what's because you know to get the job done, get her done, as uh, Doogie would say, and and you know because being on this list of worst roads is certainly no honor. Uh, but it's sad that we have to wait for our road to get onto a list before something is uh, actually done about it. But, you know, what do you do? And, of course, to drive on that road, we all know how much that is costing us. And the high price of gas is uh, virtually uh, fueling inflation and the high price of what you pay at the grocery store and everything else that has to be transported from point A to point B, which is pretty much everything that we consume, uh, all going up as a result of the high energy prices. The Liberals in the House of Commons today uh, being pressured by both the NDP and the Conservatives, uh, kind of funny from the MDP considering they're propping the government up, uh, to take action. And what can they do? Well, we pay a tremendous amount. Again, the carbon tax went up again last April. So uh, we pay a tremendous amount of of taxes when it comes to fuel and considering we're in a crisis situation and the prime minister has pretty much canceled the Canadian energy industry before uh, we have really any alternatives and making us dependent on other people. Why Canada is not energy self-sufficient considering our natural resources is beyond me. Uh, but now, of course, the Liberals getting pressure to uh, give back some of that tax money, some of that uh, you know carbon tax, some of the GST, lower that on on gas and diesel and such to uh, to get people through this. Uh, and so far, the only one that seems to be complaining or the only one that isn't complaining about high gas prices is the prime minister. This just does not seem to resonate with him at all, which is perhaps why the liberals didn't fare too well in the last provincial election here, uh, because everything they were touting really isn't front and center, isn't reality for what the average Canadian family is uh, is feeling right now. So um, we'll see what happens. But there is I, I know the government loves to shove it on to the war in Ukraine. 
Ukraine and whatever. But there is something that our government can do simply because we are so heavily taxed when it comes to uh, energy and now pushing ourselves into a corner uh, with lack of self-sufficiency. So it'll be interesting to see if Justin Trudeau listens to what the average person is telling him and uh, provides us uh, with some relief. And of course, perhaps a little bit more energy security and self-sufficiency moving forward so we don't find ourselves in a predicament like this when a world crisis arises. And not only uh, we can fend for ourselves, but also help other parts of the world that are dependent on ugly actors to get their energy from. And again, uh, there are no solutions at this point as far as solar, wind, what have you. There is no solution, immediate solution for the problems that we are uh, experiencing right now. And these are not short-term problems. Uh, so it'll be fascinating to see if the federal government is listening at all to this and uh, whether we uh, get any relief whatsoever on, you know, again, high gas prices related to everything because everything comes to you or your store by truck. Uh, whether you're, uh, you know, delivering for Amazon or delivering for, um, you know, Coca-Cola or Canada Bread or whoever, you're paying more simply because what it used to cost to transport the product from production to store, uh, that fuel is now twice as expensive. So think about that, twice as expensive. And, you know, that's a core cost for anybody in the transportation business, obviously. So, again, fascinating to see if anything will come of that. Also, uh, we talked about this a few years ago. We're going to talk about it in the show a little later on today, and that is residential development in and around uh, the larger malls. Uh, larger malls such as Lime Ridge and, uh, and well, there's very, they're everywhere, right? Uh, depending upon what town and what city you go to, whether in Maple View or Lime Ridge up on the mountain, what have you. And, uh, and a lot of this retail space is becoming available. And as our retail, uh, shopping and our, our retail, uh, uh customs change, our, re- uh, our retail behavior changes, uh, how do they repurpose these lands and, and, and generate something that uh, that works not only for the company, but for the community and, and, and everybody involved. We certainly know the issue with housing and how there is the need for denser housing in the downtown areas, meaning within the city limits. And, you know, here's a great situation where, uh, you know, you can, you can build residential areas within that mall and theoretically creating your own little community. Now, advantages to that, disadvantages to that? I don't know. I guess it depends on who you ask. But certainly a fascinating discussion, and we're going to have that coming up a little later on. Although, if it was me and I'm looking for a place to live, and I'm thinking, what do I want to be close to? For me, and this is just me personally, for me, a shopping mall is the last place I'd want to be around. Now, might be different for somebody else who might uh, be more interested in entering a shopping mall, but for me, it's like dragging a dog to the vet. You know, the paws on the floor, and I'm just, nah, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And that's even pre-pandemic. It's got nothing to do. It's got nothing. To do. I guess the pandemic makes it worse. Uh, but you know, I, I was one of those guys that you know, a couple of times a year, whether it's the birthdays or or Christmas time or whatever, you go in and you do the, you get the list and burr, you burn through it, then you get the hell out. Uh, so for somebody like me, this doesn't appeal. But for lots of people, you can see how having this. 
uh, residential area close to all of these amenities, obviously close to transit as well, because most of, uh, you know, these massive facilities are close to transportation hubs as well. So, you know, you're almost creating like a little city within a city, which is uh, kind of a cool idea, as long as it's done right. How does that work? Well, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Actually, uh, moments from now, John Paul Danko is going to be joining us, Ward 8 Councillor, uh, and talk about this exact issue. Uh, pretty exciting stuff as we're moving forward. The proposal calls for 320 units within a pair of 12-story towers on the site of the former Sears store and it goes before the city's design review panel on Thursday. Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko notes that it's one of several infill development opportunities involving large retail properties. The property is so valuable right now that owners are looking ways that for them to um, increase their revenue margins on that property. And uh, one way to do that for sure is to incorporate uh, residential development and commercial together on the same site. At the eastern end of Hamilton's future LRT line, more than 5,000 residential units are proposed within a series of mid- and high-rise buildings on the Eastgate Square property. Ken Mann, 900 CHML News. Fascinating idea. We've talked about this uh, in the past. It looks like it is a little closer to fruition. Let's bring in John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Councillor for the City of Hamilton with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Scott. We've been talking about this, I guess, uh, in theory for a while now. Where is this project? Uh, what phase is it? Uh, where are we in the process? There's been a number of proposals for the redevelopment of Lime Ridge Mall over the years. Uh, this one in particular is the north side of the property, so that's the old Sears side uh, beside the Fortinos. And uh, the proposal there is for those, these two 12-story towers along with some green space. And it's uh, it's something that we're seeing on residential or sorry on retail properties throughout the city where uh, owners um, you know are, are seeing a decline in their retail business through online sales and other competition and they're looking for ways that they can incorporate new growth into and new revenue streams into those existing properties and it's great for the city because we have a source of new tax revenue as well. It is a very interesting idea, and uh, you can see both pros and cons to this, I guess, depending on, on planning and such. But uh, obviously, when you're planning a neighborhood or a residential development, there's a process. When you're planning a, a shopping mall, it's a different process. How do, you, how do you manage both of those on the same property? And by that, and you already spoke of green space. That was one of my questions. How do you make sure this is as much neighborhood as it is mall? I think that's the key there, Scott, is that we want to make sure that we're building neighborhoods, uh, that it's not just single bedrooms or bachelor condos that are going to be bought by real estate investors and nobody actually lives there. We want to make sure that it's family friendly, two, three bedroom units, and that it's a good quality uh, build that is adds amenities to the neighborhood. So. Something like Lime Ridge Mall is already a, a hub in on the mountain. Um, mm. There's already a transit hub there. It's already, uh, you know, right beside the link for traffic that has an interchange there. Uh, so we have to make sure that we incorporate whatever the redevelopment looks like into the existing neighborhood and that it becomes an asset for our communities. We've seen retail evolve over the years, whether, uh, you know, it's the Main Street mom and pop shop, whether it's a big box type store that you might see on either side of the mountain, or uh, whether it's even like a mall type thing that, that the old Eaton centers were like, or Jackson Square was like. We've seen that really evolve. And, and like, for example, let's take the old Eaton Center, Jackson Square. Uh, you know, at the time, it was the way to go, but it was very inward facing and not very friendly out. 
outside. And obviously, if they were to do that again, they would do it a bit differently. Um, what can we learn from stuff like that? So when we, because this is a major development, we make sure we don't make those types of mistakes. That's a really excellent point. And it's really interesting that malls are really the traditional main street uh, of communities that was taken, yeah. place, placed indoors. And we're kind of seeing uh, a, a reverse back to how we did things in the past, where now we're incorporating that residential into the mall space as well. And I, I think you're absolutely right that we want to make sure that this is community facing, that it draws people in that it's not just closed off a private space for whoever is living there, that it becomes an asset for the neighborhood. And if you think about it, if you're a senior or somebody with a, with young kids, uh, where better to uh, spend some time and walk and get exercise than you have the mall right there. So I, I see there's a, a really good synergy between what's there, what's existing, and what we can uh, re-envision this. Uh, obviously, you're a city councillor and not a, a developer or, or a mall owner, owner or such, but it'll also be fascinating, John, to see how this changes the mall, uh, whether it becomes more outward-facing in some way, and even as far as the tenants, because its service, its reasoning, its objective is a bit different now because it is catering to those uh, 320, you know, units that are there, that could change them all a little bit, no? I think it will for sure. This is the first phase that Cadillac Fairview is talking about, so there's, there will be more um, on top of this. But you're right, you have that critical mass of residents who are already there, so you'll have, you know, the, the services and the, and the retail in the mall that are bringing people in from across the city, but you'll also have specific services that uh, are more resident-oriented uh, when you have people that are living in, in close proximity and they're more likely to be walking, uh, more frequent users than uh, you know people that visit the mall by car. Is there a downside here, John? What's the challenges that you may face with something like this? Well, I think the biggest one is uh, you know making sure that we uh, really take seriously traffic considerations in the neighborhood when you have that many more people coming and going into an area like mm. this. I mean, the mall is already very busy, but yeah. when you have people actually living there in that space, uh, a significant infill development, uh, we got to make sure that uh, traffic, stormwater management, all those technical issues are very well assessed and taken care of. Do you think this will be a challenge to get built, or do you think it will just make sense? Well, the city's already rezoned the property for intensification. So we've been working with Cadillac Fairview for quite some time. So it really depends on um, Cadillac Fairview of, of how soon that they want to actually get shovels in the ground. All right. Very exciting. John Paul Danko with his Ward 8 councillor, City of Hamilton, talking about two 12-story towers planning on the site of Lime Ridge. Uh, you're at the mall anyway. Why not sleep there? Uh, John, thanks for the time. Good luck with all this moving uh, forward. Challenging, neat, interesting idea. No problem. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, you know, Chris, when it comes to cryptocurrency, uh, there's lots of people who are uh, in. There's lots of people who are uh, very much questioning uh, just the stability, the consistency of the currency itself. And then there's a, another aspect of this, and that is 
scams involving cryptocurrency. So taking something that's already kind of suspect anyway, and we don't know a lot about, and then adding another element to it where people uh, are thinking they're making, um, I, I guess, honest purchases of a challenging currency and willing to gamble with that, but then getting scammed in the process. Uh, sort of a double-edged sword here. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, Scott. I am. Great to be here with you. So this is, you know, again, it, it, the currency is one thing and then the scam is another. So let's start with this. Uh, assuming that we're into buying cryptocurrency and we want to do this, we've done our due diligence. Is there a way to do this more secure than others? Well, there are. I mean, there are legitimate uh, sources of cryptocurrency investments that you know are sanctioned, that have a track record, that have been around for a while, that were in the finance business before crypto became a thing, and then added crypto to their their offerings. That you know have clients that you can talk to and you know learn from their experiences, and then apply that forward. Uh, and then, of course, there are the fly by nighters who are simply flocking to crypto um, because the, you know, the, it's the latest thing. Everyone's interested in it, and it's kind of like moths to a flame. They know that we're all there, so that's where they target us. That's where they congregate because they know that's where they're going to find most of their victims who don't really know a lot about crypto and you know might be easily fooled. Um, and as a result, it's become very much a crime of opportunity. Crypto is new. Uh, a lot of folks are still figuring their way out around it, and they're taking advantage of that relative confusion, relative lack of knowledge of how crypto works, uh, pretending to you know be those that knowledgeable source of information, but really what they're doing is just fooling people into uh, getting them to the point where they you know hand over their money and then they disappear like uh, every fly by night or would. And this is uh, a segment of the population that is willing to take a risk, so therefore easily scam perhaps. Very much so. I mean, I think, you know, like, especially now, and I suspect the numbers, the numbers that we're seeing here will continue to go up, uh, you know, A, because crypto is becoming more popular, but also because I think the bad guys are refining their techniques and also because there is just more interest in it. You know, we're living in tough times. Inflation is is up. Energy prices are up. There's you know, war in Europe. There's, you know, questions about recession coming uh, or maybe it's already here. And so people are looking for a way out. They're looking for an easy win. And there are a lot mm. of people who would be swayed by what seems to be an incredible deal, you know, like, like returns that no legitimate finance house or bank would be able to provide. Uh, so, you know, hey, let me look into that. My friend said he made a heck of a lot of money on it. Why don't I give it a try? Um, but the problem is there is no free lunch in crypto or anything else. And if the deal seems too good to be true, Chances are it is, but the the sales techniques of these scammers are so incredibly sophisticated that for some people, uh, it's easy for them to be duped. It's it's easy for them to uh, offer up their own hard-earned money without really sort of having that that uh, you know without having their their cynicism triggered. Uh, they think it's legit right up until the end, right up until they they look at their accounts and realize that it's all gone. Hmm. Haldeman resident reportedly losing 400 grand to a cryptocurrency scam. So I'm guessing what happens here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong um, uh, or, or enlighten us here, but someone getting into this probably for the first time thinks they're making a contribution to something that's reasonably legitimate or at least has some sort of track record, as you were suggesting. And then it turns out it just disappears. It was a fake. Uh, a exactly. Fake 
Exactly. And in some cases, you know, the, the, the people that they offered up, you know, I have some earlier clients who you might want to talk to. They were in on the scan, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and they'll, 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 they'll point you to a website where you can log in. So they'll, they'll ask you for small amounts of money. And then you go to the website, you see that your money is growing. Um, and so then you offer up a little bit more. And then, of course, your account keeps getting bigger and they just keep hooking you in. It's not a one-time thing. It's over and over. And it looks really legit. The logos are very sophisticated. The, the, you know, the website design, it looks like a, like a legit site. Um, and then, of course, you know, but they're just numbers on a screen. The, what's really happening in the background is that as soon as you put your money in, it's gone. Um, and then at some point you log in and you realize there is just literally nothing there. And so, you know, you, you sort of have to have your antenna up right from the beginning. Your going in position has to be assume that they're a criminal, assume that they're a crook until they mm. prove otherwise. Don't simply take it at face value that they have your best interests at heart. They don't. Well, that sort of leads to my next question, Carmi. How do you arm yourself? Like, obviously, you're going into uncharted territory anyway. You're dealing with something that that, that is a known risk. It can fluctuate. Um, how how do you how do you arm yourself and make sure you're at least gambling the right way? You know, how did Ronald Reagan put it so many years ago? Trust but verify. You know, always mm. know who you're talking to. And in many cases, uh, that basic due diligence isn't being done. So they're basically handing over money to complete strangers. And so do the background check into the who that person is and who that organization or institution is. Look into their background. Contact their clients independently. If you can't find them, that's a huge red flag. Don't simply uh, connect with those who they serve up to you because they're probably not legitimate. Uh, call the Better Business Bureau. What have they heard? Look for other reports of scams like this or, or involving the organization that they, that, that they purport to be um, because chances are if they've scammed you, they've probably scammed someone before. And if that pattern fits, that is a red flag to not hand over anything to them. And also watch how much personal information you are sharing online. In many cases, these organizations will, um, they, they will scavenge your social media presence looking for personal data points about you, uh, your spouse's name, your kid's name, where you grew up, things like that. And these are all things that we innocently share online. We shouldn't be. Uh, but then they inject that into the conversation as a way of driving familiarity. It lets us, it allows us to let our guard down, but really we shouldn't. We should recognize where this information is coming from and then, then maybe go look at our social media profiles and remove some of that information for good. Uh, we, as we look at a lot of these scams, they're very, very, very old scams, just retorked with technology and such. With cryptocurrency, does it lend itself? Is it easier to get scammed in something like this? Because uh, it, it is, it is yeah. where it is. I think it is, you know, because the whole idea of cryptocurrency is that it's highly secure, it's encrypted, it's supposed to be um, immune to uh, subterfuge. But, you know, as scientists dig deeper into it, we realize that it really is kind of handy for criminals to do their thing and then escape uh, the long arm of the law. And so um, I think, you know, cryptocurrency's basic architecture lends itself really well to abuse. Um, And law enforcement is figuring out how to deal with it and how to investigate these kinds of crimes. In this case, the individual in Hagersville who was taken for $400,000, the OPP is investigating, and they do have a cyber crimes unit, a very good one, um, that will dig into this. But, um, you know, the truth of the matter is, is this is a very fast moving target. And just as the cops get better at finding the bad guys and, you know, they, they get better tools and better processes and better training, well, the bad guys raise their bar too. Um, mm. And so because cryptocurrency is moving so quickly, 
um, that really is a problem. It's just, it's, it's, it's this never ending game of cops and robbers. And you're right. It's, it's the same scam that it's been for a very long time, but the technology means that the good guys and the bad guys are constantly leapfrog, leapfrogging each other. And that's probably not going to change anytime soon. We're going to have you back on soon, Carmi, to talk about uh, fraud in and around social media accounts. Cause they have more questions there, but we're out of time. Mm-hmm. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist talking about cryptocurrency and the scams are there too. Carmi as always. Thanks for the time. Be well. I appreciate it, Scott. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter still in regard to, you know, you think that this would kind of level out. Um, but air travel and just what a nightmare it is to travel around this country, specifically out of, uh, out of Toronto. And, you know, many at the beginning said, well, airlines weren't up and running with all their staff and everything that they needed, which is, you know, still very much a factor in all of this that, uh, you know, unfortunately the, the, uh, workforce just isn't up to where it was, uh, before the pandemic. Uh, and that is part of the problem. But uh, another problem, which ke- seems to be getting more and more, uh, focus, certainly of late and after the government extended, uh, the protocol screening for, you know, that's been, that's been, uh, alive and well, all due COVID, uh, all through COVID-19 through the global pandemic to the end of the month. Are the remaining COVID-19 protections at airports enough to worth, uh, for the trouble that it is creating? Uh, any step is one extra step, although many have said that's not the problem. It's an understaffing issue. Uh, but let's look at it from this point of view. Let's bring in Thomas Tenke, professor, School of Occupational and Public Health with Toronto Metropolitan University and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on again. So it's been a while since we've talked, Tom, and uh, there was a time when we would talk quite frequently and we would always chatter about numbers and which direction they were going and such. Not so much now. Um, you know, the numbers I've got today, 526 in hospital, uh, 114 in ICU, uh, and 62% of those admitted for other reasons. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on where we are now in this global pandemic, where we have come. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like I think overall the numbers are in, in a, in a good place. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, as we've talked, uh, you know, we, we can't really look at just the case numbers now. We have to look at the the, the other variables as well. Uh, yeah. You know, percent prob- uh, positivity in in uh, in testing and uh, death rates and and uh, what's happening in hospitalizations as as well as the uh, you know the wastewater uh, COVID in the wastewater. And so broadly across all of those measures, that you know things are things are you know, going in the right direction. Uh, but, you know, of, of course, depending on localities, there's there's some blips. Uh, but, you know, I think what's, for me, when I looked at the, the latest numbers, what's interesting is is the issue for hospitalizations and vaccinated, as in fully vaccinated by two doses versus unvaccinated. And, and what it's really showing is that uh, if you only have your two doses, you're really not getting, you're not really protected. So, so it's... Uh, that's an encouragement for people if they haven't had their third dose and if they can have a third dose uh, to, to do it because uh, basically, you know, from my perspective, if, if you're, uh, you're just uh, two doses is, is, is not going to cut it, is, is, isn't cutting it now. So, so you've really got to say, well, overall then, you know, you're seeing that the, you know, from a vaccination perspective, the encouragement was, you know, we really tried hard to get two doses, but then really fell off uh, around for the third dose. 
you, you have to say, well, you can't really rely on vaccinations uh, much from a protection measure. So then you have to say, well, uh, you know, what are the other measures? And, and I think that's what, you know, what we're uh, seeing now is uh, quite a lot of uh, inconsistency around rules, say, for mask wearing and other things. And, and I think that's really uh, not, not uh, the great, uh, not a good situation to be in this inconsistency. Uh, so obviously advice there to get the booster, but is it time to be relaxing the protocols at airports? I mean, obviously vaccinations, one thing you want to keep that up. Um, but is it time to, mm. to perhaps, uh, free up the stages it takes for us to get through the airport? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, like I, yeah, definitely, uh, I'm glad that I'm not traveling at, at the moment because it seems, uh, quite a, quite a hassle. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you know from a mask wearing perspective, uh, and you know some of the other protocols. I think you know, like from a public health perspective, I think uh, you know we have to say, well, you know, do 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 uh, air, airports uh, are they really considered a high risk setting or not from from a transmission perspective? Uh, I think if you you know on a number of number of reasons, you would still say they they are. But, but the issue is that people have generally gone through a range of other what I would still consider high risk settings and haven't had to wear masks to get to mm. the airport, and then mm. they have to have it, and then you know so so it's really that inconsistency uh, of of where do you wear the masks, where where don't you wear them, even though from a I think from a logic perspective, there, there's a, a good rationale to keep wearing masks in in a lot of lot of indoor settings across the board even though you you don't have to so so i think uh, that really gets back to i suppose individual preference uh and and also you know what what your individual risk is and maybe the risk of the people you live with and so so if you're if you're high at a high risk yourself or uh you live with someone who's at high risk i think that you know it's really important to 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 wear a mask still but for the general community, uh, because of this inconsistency, I'm just not sure if uh, you know if the mask mandates are really having you know playing the role that they should now. You bring up a very interesting point, and that was in one of the articles I was reading, Tom. And that is, is that you know you you walk around the city or cities wherever, and you can see how people are are are, are living with this. Uh, whereas you go back into an airport, all of a sudden it's going back like a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think you know, what, you know, what I would, yeah, in some ways, like from my perspective, mask masking is sort of, you know, they, they, it operates on two levels. One level is as an individual and you know, really protecting yourself. Uh, the other aspect is is protecting others, and really that aspect of protecting others uh, occurs when when you know you have a a large number of people wearing masks, uh, or you know, the majority of people. So. Whereas, you know, if you're just, if you're about protecting yourself, then, uh, you know, that that's, that's the, like, I think, uh, you know, that that's on one aspect, whereas overall, it it, mm. it is really difficult. And I, I think, uh, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, we're really in that, in that phase of the, of the pandemic where, you know, people are really wanting to sort of move on and, and get back to, Back to normal, yeah. you know the numbers are really down, and so you know it, it's really a it's a it's a sort of a difficult position to to get the balance right. Whereas uh, 
Yeah, it, Thomas, I'm going to have to cut yeah. you off there. We're completely okay. out of time. Thomas Tenke, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, on the restrictions still at airports. When restrictions slowly uh, began uh, being lifted and things opened up and the the barn doors were opened, uh, one of the things we first started to see take off was air travel. Uh, obviously, the uh, the sky's now filled with planes. People, uh, a backlog of travel, are anxious to get out and about, and obviously. Obviously, with shortages of staff and such, it has created chaos at some of the country's airports, specifically Pearson. And I, I think lots thought that over time this would work its way out, but does not seem to be getting any better. Uh, with the latest uh, from former uh, former NHL player Ryan Whitney and his experiences on social media, uh, trying to get in and out and through Toronto and such. What is the problem here, and why is it dragging out? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. So what is the reasoning here? We're hearing everything from short staff to travelers who just aren't as sharp as they once were. Uh, what is the reasoning here? Uh, and, and is this just happening in Toronto? Well, let me start with your last question first. No, it's not just happening in Toronto. It's everywhere. All the airports are trying to adjust to this. Now, Ryan's story is an interesting one. And, and to be candid with you, I do not understand why he's blaming Pearson. So he was flying from Edmonton to Boston through Toronto. He gets to Toronto. He has to switch to a flight to Boston. And he finds first that there's a problem getting through American security. That's not Pearson's fault. Pearson gives that space to Border Services, which is a U.S. agency, U.S. Customs Inspectors, that's their business to do. It's not the airport's fault. Then as he gets through security, he finds out his flight's been canceled. Pearson didn't do that either. An airline canceled that flight. And why did they cancel the flight? It wasn't staff shortages. It was extreme weather in the Boston area that had backed things up. So as a, as a flyer, and I have, I've flown in the last month myself, I had a fine experience flying through Pearson. But when something happens, I don't automatically blame the airport if it's an airline problem or a security problem. In his case, he actually got the idea that maybe what he should do is get his bags back and drive to Buffalo and fly from Buffalo. But once you've checked your bags, Canadian security services say it's not possible to do that. So he was venting, and that's a very popular thing for us all to do as we're getting back to normal. I'm just not sure his venting's accurate. Uh, whether it's accurate or not, uh, they may say your excuse is passing the buck. The point is, whether his story is accurate or not, there's millions of people who are complaining about the same thing. So yep. what is the reasoning for all? Is it strictly a short staffing issue? No, I don't. I, again, I'm not sure it's a one-size-fits-all thing. There would be days when, when you have a shift and suddenly someone calls in sick. I've tested positive for COVID. I can't come in and suddenly you're short-staffed. Or it's the airplane, they have to have a certain number of pilots and, and attendants, and somebody calls in sick, takes a while to get somebody in to replace it. So short staffing may be some of it. Weather is certainly a part of it as well. We've had some extreme weather over the last few weeks. Um, it could just simply be the, the people themselves. You know, when I flew, I processed documents days in advance so I wouldn't have any problems, and I didn't. But I see other people who show up at the airport ill-prepared and don't know how to do it. I think it's a combination of these factors that then compound on this. And to your to your greater question, is this going to go away? You know, in some cases, we've, we've forgotten how to fly. I hope it does. I hope we all become a little more skilled as it goes. 
certainly the airlines are trying to respond. Uh, you know, let's let's just kind of keep the process moving. I think it will self-correct. Do we need to lift restrictions, COVID restrictions? Well, certainly that was a comment by some people. Look, if we didn't have these additional things, if I didn't have to submit these documents, if I didn't have to to show that I had been uh, screened and, and had boosters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, this whole process would go a little faster. And that is true. Uh, Likewise, though, we still take our shoes off when we have to go through, and that's because of some bomber a decade ago who tried to smuggle a bomb on. We haven't had a foot bomb or a shoe bomb on a plane in <laughs> 10 years. Why are we still doing it? So, yeah, we could eliminate those restrictions, but I think, again, it's just us being a little more attuned to what's going on. So at the end of the day, though, Marvin, and I've heard many people say exactly what you've said, is it good business to say, well, you know, the customer is just not as sharp as they once were? I don't know. I mean, well, we, are where we, we're, no. we're, we are where we are, Marvin, and it appears that business isn't, isn't there yet. Well, I understand what you're saying. Is it good business to blame the customer? No. Uh, the old saying is the customer's always right, and what you want to do is try to help the customer as much as possible. Now, in Ryan's story, they had rebooked him, and when he arrived the next morning for the flight that he thought he'd been booked on, they had booked him on yet another one, which he arrived late for, and he couldn't board the plane, and he says he never received a notification for that. I can't, I can't default him on this, but clearly airlines have to, at this time specifically, really sharpen up on their communication strategy um, and, and make sure that they are communicating, especially today with cell phone technology and wireless technology. There is no reason in the world that you can't be notified. I can again draw on my experience, as you probably know, I flew to Egypt uh, in the last month and uh, a plane was delayed and I was getting regular updates on my email, which I could check on and see what was going on. I, I actually laughed because they would tell me when the plane was moved by five minutes. I knew that because I was sitting in the airport, but nonetheless, they were trying to keep me in the loop. So I don't know why his updates didn't come through. Maybe he didn't have the right cell phone number or maybe he didn't think to have it on. But we all, again, have to try to respond as best we can to these circumstances. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at Group School of Business, McMaster University, the ongoing issue, trying to get on and off a plane. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Last week, a uh, provincial election, a sleepy one at that. And obviously, uh, Doug Ford's progressive conservatives uh, winning another majority, picking up more seats. Not so for the opposition. Uh, NDP uh, leader stepping down, as is the leader of the Liberal Party. Both those parties looking for new leaders. Uh, what is the future moving forward? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. I hope you're doing well also. Yes, thanks so much. First, let's start before we get to merging and whatever and all the other chatter. Uh, what happened here? Why did these two parties kind of flame out and just not resonate? It's a combination of issues. In Horvath's case, she's had a couple kicks at the can and she d d never really had a chance to take fire. And I think this was the election where she really realized that it was now or never, and it was never for her. On the liberal side, Stephen Del Duca, well, he was as charismatic as a football, so I think that was kind of his problem. 
Uh, it seems, too, that fighting an election or running an election campaign post-pandemic is a little different than it was for the last couple of decades. It seemed to me that uh, the, liber- the liberals and the, and the NDP were running a similar campaign as they have in the past, and that just didn't seem to resonate uh, this time out, perhaps because the issues were more economic. What are your thoughts? I, I think there's a partial uh, discussion there to have about the economical issues as we are facing harder times. Uh, I also think just the story around COVID has been challenging too. Plus, people, frankly, were not very interested in this election. They had a lot more pressing issues on their mind than what was happening in Ontario. And I think broadly speaking, one of the reasons why we saw such low voter turnout was there wasn't much inspiring policies out there that really drew that really brought people in and got people engaged like we've seen in previous elections. Last election, obviously more interest, but that was after 15 years of liberal rule. Uh, Safe to say when people want change, they show up. When they don't, they have a tendency to stay at home. That, that's a very accurate summary, summary of what happened in Canada, especially in Ontario. We don't vote for new governments. We vote to get rid of governments. Mm-hmm. And four years ago, we did just that. And we voted to get rid of a liberal government uh, and replace it with a conservative government. And then this time around, four years later, in the current year we're in, there was no real appetite for a new government or really any change. So the status quo stuck around. Is it worth, there's chatter now of these two parties merging, I guess, after what we saw happen federally and the deal that was made there. Is there any sense in these two parties merging? From what we understand, they don't really like each other that much. Or is that worth doing just to win an election? It's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Currently, right now, both houses are on fire. um, And no one really knows how to put out the fire. So they think merging it together, make one big fire will be the solution. But at the end of the day, there are some major differences between the NDP and the Liberals, and that's why they're not one party previously, is because there are some very specific policy issues that they disagree on, and that what separates them. So I don't think they'll join. I don't think it's smart for the, either party to kind of link up together. And at the end of the day, I think those differences in ideology will kind of keep the two parties apart. I guess because we've seen the merger at the federal level or the deal at the federal level that we think there's more in common there than actually than there actually is. Is there much in common between these two parties or is that just an illusion? There is some in terms of pushing progressive ideas, uh, somewhat stuff especially around public transit and how we should protect the environment but when you get some of the more nuts and bolts of the approach of how we get there and the timelines that's when we see the difference traditionally the ndp really want to put the pedal to the metal where the conservatives are a little where the liberals are a little bit more hands-off and we'll kind of want that longer period to kind of work through some more of the technical details plus the liberals have a long history of being the national governing party in canada as well as good times and good strength in ontario so i think when we see look at that in the more of the historical context like it doesn't make sense for these two parties to want to try to join together and defeat the conservatives do you think the deal between the federal uh, uh, liberals and the ndp is helping or hurting each other's brand I think it's helping the Liberals brand the most just because they're able to push through legislation that they're interested in. I think it gives some credit to the NDP saying that, hey, look, we can get progressive policies done and they will help people. But I think when push comes to shove, I think the NDP are going to get burnt in this. Traditionally, the party that props up the government in the next election is usually the one that doesn't fare as well. So I think people are going to get tired of the Liberal government and they're going to blame the NDP for being the ones that stood there to keep them afloat.
So let's get back to the provincial level. Uh, obviously, the Liberals and the NDP are looking for new leaders. Um, is there a timeline there? Is this a, com- a complete party rebuild? What sort of soul-searching is going on with both these parties right now? There's a lot of soul-searching going on, especially in the Liberal Party, because even though the seven-vote numbers are still coming in, they lost about 20,000 votes compared to uh, the 2018 election, and voter turnout was down. But when you went from the disdain for Kathleen Wynne to what was hopeful in Stephen Del Duca, that's not a good sign. So one of the benefits for them of a Ford government, of a majority government, is that they have four years to sort everything out. So I think they're going to take the summer and take some time to reflect, get some names put in the hat, see who might be running, who might be in, who might be out, who might be coming from Ottawa to be a savior. And I think the same thing could be said for the NDP. Uh, Horvath has done a great job of leading that party for a number of years. She's been a very strong, stable hand uh, guiding the party. But now they have an opportunity to kind of look at some new policies. Do they want to go further to the left? Do they want to move to the center? Are they happy where they are? And I think those conversations take time. And with the majority of government, you have that time to kind of spend and really try to retool so you can beat uh, the conservatives in the next election. Many times we're hearing and we, you know, they were talking about uh, uh, strategic voting at one point during this Mm -hmm. provincial election that, you know, it's not about the liberals or the NDP winning. It's about defeating uh, Doug Ford and so on and so forth. Do, Do both these parties have to do more to uh, to differ themselves to to create their own individuality I think there is strong brand recognition for both of the parties and there is a difference in their approach to how they engage voters. I think instead of looking at strategic voting, um, looking to merge these parties, what these parties actually need to do is find a way to get people to the polls. Because historically, the way that it works is if there's a high voter turnout, it's traditionally better for those parties that are progressive and usually bad for the conservatives. So if they're really looking and wanting to get serious, instead of wanting to change the rules that have guided democracy for hundreds of years, what they actually need to do is to find a way to connect with voters and get them to the polls. It's not reasonable to rewrite the rules because you lost. You need to understand how the game is played and you need to be able to win within those rules. Um, And that's to me, my earlier question is to, is running a campaign different now post-pandemic than pre-pandemic? Because we all know what the top five issues were, you know, if you do polling and such, and then what the top five issues that the parties chase. It seemed the top five issues, as well as healthcare, which it it always is near the top, if not, um, it it was the high cost of life, the high cost Mm -hmm. of housing, the high cost of groceries, the high cost of energy. Um, and, and inflation and such. It seemed that there were more economic issues post-pandemic than there were uh, before the pandemic started. And it, it seemed as if, uh, you know, I know Del Duca came up with a $1 uh, thing for transit and such, but, uh, you know, I, and again, that helps, but I don't think the major issue with transit is that it's too expensive, is that it's not efficient. It doesn't take us where we need to go. So did they just miss the mark here? or Because it seems that people's attitudes have changed now. Yeah, I think, especially as I look at gas prices, uh, for instance, especially if you're driving to the polls, you probably would have noticed, uh, it's quite high right now. I remember uh, growing up when gas was a dollar, people were ready to riot, let alone $2. So we're seeing everything becoming more and more expensive, especially as we're exiting the pandemic. And people's salaries, paychecks have not increased. So they're really finding it hard to make this adjustment back to this regular life that we've had. 
that we have been missing out on because of COVID. And that includes the cost of things. So I think when people look at their bank account every month, every week, or even every day, and they notice that their savings account is not as big as it once was, that's concerning to them. So talking about dollar transit is great, but if you can't afford to go anywhere, paying a dollar to get there really won't matter. So Mm. I, I agree with you that the economical side of this discussion we're having in Ontario will continue to keep growing because people want to be able to afford stuff. They want to be able to buy groceries. They want to go on a vacation every once in a while. And even for some young people, they want to buy a house one day. And right now it's not looking like that's possible for everyone. And that, that causes a lot of frustration. Daniel Perry with his consultant, Summa Strategies, talking about the opposition parties and their challenges moving forward. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Lots to talk about, whether it's guns or the tensions rising overseas. Reggie Giacchini is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Let's start with gun control. Unfortunately, uh, every time after there's some sort of mass shooting, there's uh, calls for and chatter about this. Uh, Americans pretty cynical in some respects that it's just another one. Uh, I had one reporter say to me, now today we got Matthew McConaughey up there, Hollywood actor uh, at the White House speaking. Where are we with this discussion? Is there anything new here? Well, I mean, number one, with Matthew McConaughey addressing uh, the White House press corps today, uh, it's important, number one, because it brings a focus, uh, a large national and international focus to what is going on by way of his Hollywood clout. Number two, he is a Uvalde, Texas native, and he brought the stories uh, of the families uh, of the children who died in the uh, attack there, uh, you know, earlier this month uh, or late last month. Um, brought those stories to the national audience, brought those to uh, a spotlight to to try and tell America um, why gun laws need to change, to try and sway the opinions uh, of Congress. Uh, And he went into explicit detail, uh, talking about uh, the conditions that some of these child victims were in and brought a pair of Converse that one of the victims was wearing. And that was the only way that that child was able to be uh, identified. So this was a big moment, whether or not it's going to move the needle, whether or not it's going to sway anything. He says that it potentially could. But, you know, this is not uh, an issue isolated to Uvalde, Texas. This is a country that has been gripped with gun violence for years and years and years and very little changes. Could that change later this week? It's possible the talks are still ongoing. Uh, obviously, there's lots of chatter of this in the media. There's lots of chatter within uh, Democratic circles. What about the Republicans? Uh, any of them swaying in any way? Uh, you know, and obviously their connections with the NRA. Well, I mean, you know, look, there's Republicans that are involved in these bipartisan conversations, clearly, uh, including Texas Senator John Cornyn, who uh, was handpicked by minority leader Mitch McConnell uh, to take part in these conversations. Does that mean that Democrats are going to potentially walk away with a win here? Possibly not. Does it mean that there could be a watered down version of what Democrats are calling for, be it expanded background checks or new red flag laws? That is a possibility. Some Republicans are open to the fact that something could need to change uh, because there is a broad public sentiment here that goes in favor of uh, new or at least stricter or potentially more strong gun uh, legislation in this country. There's a lot of vehemently opposed Republicans saying that this gets in the way of law abiding uh, and common sense, you know, gun ownership in this country. But at the end of the day, you know, Democrats say that they are expecting to have some kind of framework at the end of this week. 
We'll simply have to wait and see what they end up with. Considering the divisiveness, uh, not only in the world, but in the United States, things like January 6th, what have you, uh, do you see America being in a different place during this time of the discussion? I don't, you know, Matthew McConaughey made a point of, of saying from the podium that the country is not as divided as they are being told they are. Uh, mm. And that may be true. There are more Americans who are in favor uh, of moving in one direction when it comes to gun legislation, both Republicans and Democrats, than there are inside Capitol Hill. Uh, and that goes back to what you had mentioned with the NRA. The NRA does provide big money into Republican campaigns and Republican uh, candidacy. Uh, and, and Democrats call that dark money. So that often times can cloud the judgment or the ability for Republicans to move forward. How is the country going to be able to deal with this? You know, we'll have to see what happens at the end of this week if framework comes out. This is a country that's actively waiting to see what comes out of these January 6 hearings that start uh, uh, on Thursday, along with more testimony from survivors of Uvalde and Buffalo, which takes place tomorrow. There's a lot coming at the American public. This will be a kind of meter to see where the American public is. All right, only got a little bit of time left to actually talk about what we wanted to talk to you about. But again, uh, this is obviously a, a bigger issue, but uh, that being gun control. But tensions rising between the U.S. and North Korea, talking about tentative nuclear tests, North Korea is, and then uh, flyby support of force, that sort of thing. Is this just North Korea trying to get into the discussion when there's world unrest? Look, North Korea is saber rattling here uh, and the United States is not putting up with it. They're conducting these joint military drills with South Korea and with Japan in order to try and show a, a sign of force against North Korea on the fears that a nuclear test could potentially be coming from North Korea. It's first test in a number of years. The United States tried to get more sanctions put on North Korea. It was pushed back upon by China and Russia. Does this mean that, you know, North Korea is is signaling that it's stronger, potentially, even as it's in the midst and grips uh, of a deadly COVID outbreak in its country? It is trying to show that it is a nuclear force and not something to be reckoned with. The U.S. is joining its allies in the region to show that if North Korea does something, the U.S. and its allies will be ready to jump quickly. That's why they're holding these military drills. That's why they're holding uh, these flybys in the air. Again, this is just another issue to go on an already crowded foreign policy plate for the president. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Everybody is aware of the opioid crisis uh, in this country, specifically after or during a global pandemic, which uh, obviously made conditions more challenging for uh, all involved. And now, uh, specifically in British Columbia, uh, talking about decriminalizing uh, some forms of drugs in order to get a handle on the opioid situation over there and we certainly know uh, how, bit it, how bad it has become in British Columbia. Uh, the government of Canada giving BC the uh, permission to experiment with, the, with this and try to supply a safe supply. What does this all mean? Uh, and is this the solution that uh, BC and perhaps the rest of the country is looking for? Let's bring in Mark Hayden, adjunct professor, School of Population and Public Health, University of British Columbia, and with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. It's good to be on the show. So, Mark, what exactly is BC looking at here? What are we talking about? Walk us through this. Well, the province of British Columbia has decriminalized personal possession of most of the hard drugs, opiates, crystal meth, cocaine, and curious enough, MDMA. So it's a, it's a movement away from a criminal justice paradigm. It's a movement towards 
having a health approach to drugs in our province. Obviously, those uh, who I'll play devil's advocate here say you're providing more product, you're you're giving people more opportunity to use. What is your response to that? Well, un- unfortunately, it, we aren't actually providing more product. I mean, an ideal health model would provide a safe supply for people. I mean, we the first drug law in Canada was 1908, so we can reflect on over mm. a century of data. And what we actually know is that prohibition doesn't work. And so what we need to do is do effective policies for drug users. And effective policies are health interventions. And one of the health interventions, there are many, but one of the health interventions is pr- providing opiates to opiate addicts. And quite frankly, I believe that we should provide a wide range of them, including heroin and fentanyl. And so when we eventually wrap our heads collectively as Canadians around an appropriate, effective, efficient approach to drugs, it'll be a health approach and not a criminal justice approach. So this all starts, I believe, in the new year. What do you expect to see in that first year? Will we know within that first year whether this is working or not? Or And will all of a sudden the light go off and, geez, we should have done this a long time ago. Well, it's, it's not quite that simple. We're simply raising a flag saying it's a health issue. And it really depends on how the money flows. Because right now, a huge amount of money is spent in the criminal justice system. I mean, one of, one of the sad truths of this whole discussion is that jail is crime school for the same three reasons that Harvard Law is upper crust training school. Because three things happen in jail that happen in Harvard Law. One is you learn some stuff, and two is you're constantly told who you are, and three is you make connections. So people graduate from the criminal justice system, more hardened criminals, and people graduate from Harvard Law to the top of our society. So we really need to shift. And so this is a process of basically just acknowledging widely that it doesn't work. The prohibition process doesn't work. Now, as we reduce the spending on policing courts, jails, border guards, the whole criminal justice system, then hopefully we'll put more money into the health system. So more treatment options will be available, more services from detox centers to uh, residential treatment centers to support services for people with a variety of different addiction concerns. If we can move in that direction, we'll make a difference. This is obviously not a new problem. Is there somebody, is there a jurisdiction, a place where they're doing this well, where they're having success with this? Well, it's interesting because Portugal was the first country to essentially move in a direction of decriminalization. And what they did actually quite brilliantly is they involved the police because the police like to be involved with this field. So they gave the police the responsibility as referral agents. And amazingly, and and very quickly, there was positive effects, positive effects on all the health indicators, HIV, Hep C, overdose deaths. But curiously enough, which is kind of fascinating, compared to all of the European countries, drug use actually went down specifically in the youth. So they made it more boring. And, and, it, and it actually worked. So what we do know is health interventions work. And what we know absolutely solidly is criminal justice interventions are a complete failure. And we have a long time to reflect on that. What are the biggest challenges, Mark, moving to this after January of next year? How do you implement this and, you know, at a slow enough pace that keeps everybody happy, but a fast enough pace where you actually see some results? Well, engaging the healthcare system more widely. I mean, public opinion is huge. You know, having these kind of discussions across the country and absolutely repetitively so people will vote for politicians who start to wave a different flag. I mean, Justin Trudeau, curiously, was the, the, the... 
won hugely a couple of the federal elections ago. And the biggest difference between him and his competitors were the fact that he was proudly and loudly announcing complete legalization of cannabis. And what we know is the sky did not fall in. You know, we don't have horror on our streets because of legalization of cannabis. We all, as Canadians, have completely accepted that now. It's quite frankly fine. And we're getting taxes that are rolling in because of it. And there's less involvement with the criminal justice system. So I think most Canadians agree it's a success. So slowly we need to move away from just cannabis to all other currently illegal drugs. And politicians need to learn that this is not political suicide. In fact, if you speak the right language and you talk about public health inter interventions, I actually believe that it can be successful for any politician who learns how to do that. So the war on drugs obviously was the wrong approach. The war on drugs is a complete and miserable social failure. And mm -hmm. it's both a, it's a social failure, not just in increasing suffering and not reducing the available drugs, but it's a complete waste of financial resources. We're spending all of our money on exactly the wrong approach to drugs. Mark Hayden with us, adjunct professor, School of Population and Public Health, University of British Columbia, BC, decriminalizing uh, in the new year small portions of narcotics in order to get a handle on their uh, situation there. And uh, it may just work. Mark, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. You're welcome, Scott. A pleasure to be on the show. We've been talking about this a lot lately. Uh, well, since the uh, the June second election, provincial election in Ontario, where uh, the PCs and Doug Ford uh, got another majority in this election, uh, even improving their seat count over the last election, and uh, obviously with the opposition uh, left in not a very desirable situation, including both leaders stepping aside. But there was a time when nobody wanted anything to do with Doug Ford, specifically the federal edition of the Conservative. And I remember when uh, Andrew Shear was running way back when, uh, again, none seemed to want any support or any acknowledgement of Doug Ford whatsoever. Now Doug Ford has won two straight majorities. Are they going to be looking at what Ontario is doing a little more closely and perhaps less divisiveness? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine, Scott. Obviously, we've seen Doug Ford change. He was once the bull in the China shop. Now, after uh, the global pandemic, he's softened things up. He's become more of a centrist. Uh, we remember when the feds didn't want anything to do with this guy. Are they looking at this Ontario election resolve and rejigging their thoughts, perhaps? Well, uh, by the way, I mean, I think this is, this is an old, long story. Uh, a federal liberal prime minister and the Premier of Ontario, and they're arm-in-arm. And we've seen this many mm -hmm. times over the last 75 years. And uh, they basically have the same interest in, at heart. They both want to win the next election, even, even if the next election is four years or three years ahead. That it's really in the interest of those two, party, uh, those two types of leaders to really get along. It surprises a lot of people who expect them not to get along. But in fact, they, they share this view, well... Let's. Uh, they want to basically run run the country, and uh, the way they do it is by basically cooperating with each other. It's funny how you know you bring up a valid point, and you know there's a political cartoon in the spec on this that you know the the prime minister and the premier are running arm in arm, mm -hmm. um, it, which seems odd considering you know uh, the federal candidates want to run arm in arm with them. Yeah, well, the uh, the I mean, I think people. I, I'm my sort of view is. A lot of the politicians aren't nearly as ideological or 
uh, that they pretend to be uh, of hmm. all stripes, of all stripes. And the big That's thing is most of them want to be successful. And I didn't want to go out in front of the voters and saying, I'm running because I'm ambitious and I want to be the leader, uh, you know, the premier or the prime minister. But that's what they think. That's why they're out there. They don't, they're not out there to fail or go down with the ship. None of them are. And uh, no matter how ideological they may sound, but uh, they, and especially none are better at it than, a, than, a, than liberal mm. you know, prime ministers and provincial premiers. So uh, we, we've talked at length, Henry, yeah. even before the pandemic, about how divisive politics has become. It's the, it seems we've lost the center. Either you're the extreme on this side or the extreme on that side. We're seeing this with Pierre Polyev and his conservative leadership mm-hmm. bid. He's he's like pushing the envelope right. and, and and really antagonizing people. Um, are, is politics changing here? Are we looking for more cooperation now and less divisiveness? Well, I think I think in the past the conserv- people who ran for the conservative leadership up in Ottawa recognized that just because you know going far to the right and winning the nomination um, of your party doesn't may not guarantee or may not may make it hard for you to win the federal election, and that's that. I mean that is that is and that is the wise sort of view. You can you know you can bring in you can you can go hard right. You can pull all those people in. They can sign up memberships, and uh, they'll vote. Come out and vote for you, and you win the party's leadership. But then you've got to deal with the federal election, where most of the country is not in that sort of hard right position. Mm. And so you you have to be careful about being over, overly conservative. And we know some of the politicians at times get in trouble uh, by making promises. Say the conservatives. That, that they're you know that they're social conservatives or they'll say something that takes a social conservative slant, but then as soon as they have the leadership, they say, "Uh oh, I got to get out from under this because if I go before the people and they they typecast me as a social conservative, I'm I'm dead in dead in the water," and so they have to squirm around and get out and and uh, you know sometimes the the biggest problem at that point. Uh, is uh, when they start squirming around, their own leaders, you know, get angry. Their own followers get angry at them. Look what happened to the previous leader of the Conservative mm. Party. He, mm-hmm. you know, he made certain promises to the social conservatives. Then he recognized, well, I'm not going to win an election, <laughs> you know, if I if I'm type class as, as a social conservative because the people in Quebec and Ontario are not going to vote for me. And he so said, isn't Polly upsetting himself? Mad at them and they kicked them out. <laughs> so isn't Polyev doing the same thing, except on the opposite side of the spectrum? Well, we I mean, he's... Yeah. Sorry. I mean, but can he, you know, run for the leadership this way, and then all of a sudden change his colors when, uh, you know, it's time to run in a federal election? Because all these clips, well, you know, will come back to haunt him. Yeah, I mean, I mean he... I don't know what, what he thinks. He may think that he can, you know, not compromise after he wins the leadership, but... I mean, he, he's, he's, he's dug himself in, he's digging himself into a nice big hole. Of course, he's hmm. going to win scores of voters in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. But that's not, doesn't make him, that doesn't mean that he's going to win a general election. And, yeah. and, and he, and I, I'm not sure. I don't understand him. I mean, I, he wants to win the leadership so bad, but I mean, I'm, I'm not sure he's thought through what happens after you become the leader. And you've made all these intense promises. I mean, and then what and, are you going to do? 
And and again, going back to what can they learn from the Ontario progressive conservatives, um, you know, because they've just seen somebody who's come to the middle and and be successful. So is that approach going to work this time? Has the pendulum swung back? Well, I mean, the thing about what Ford did, he was a very intelligent conservative uh, in the last year. I mean, going into January, last year, January, he's losing the election in my calculations. But then he, he figured out, he and his people around him figured out a way of how they're going to essentially bring the, uh, the electorate over. And, and the basic way was spend a lot of money. They were spending all sorts of monies in all sorts of different ways beginning in February. And as, mm-hmm. as they spent the money, you could see his popularity go up. And now for people who want, you know, physical conservatism, well, you don't get it. You don't get it in the months leading up to an election usually. Yeah. And, and, and they certainly, and, and it paid off for Ford. Now, I want to see, you know, whether Ford is going to, you know, try to cut back on that. Then he's going to get, you know, people might get angry, but he's saying, well, maybe I can do it for two years and then, then open up things a little bit more. We'll have to see. But, I mean, certainly the, the, the way to, you know, for somebody to win a, an election is essentially is to spend a lot of money. I mean, and, and whether people, you know, physical conservatives like it or not, but that, that is the way, you know, people want money. <laughs> they love getting Does... checks in the mail. <laughs> Do you think that the success that Doug Ford has had in Ontario will change Polyev's um, uh, performance or uh, trajectory as time moves on? Well, he's got, you know, he... um he has to think about, yeah, now what can, it, what, you know, how to, how to, so, you know, he's got that hard right position and he's got a lot of people supporting him from that area. He, now would be the time for him to figure out, you know, sort yeah. of think about how he could soften it a bit without alienating those positions. So he's, he's got to walk a tightrope. I mean, politics is always a tightrope. And I said, that's what I think if he wants to be successful in the, you know, for the, for, you know, down the road. Uh, for, to the election th- two, three years from now, he's got to start walking that tightrope. But he's just, if he just stays on one side, uh, you know, uh, without walking it, I mean, I think he's going to find himself in a very difficult position two or three years down the road. But uh, I'm a bit surprised, but let's, let's see what happens, yeah. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about whether the uh, federal conservatives are learning, learning anything from the provincial. Always fascinating, Henry. Thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very good, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Your thoughts on living at a shopping mall? Wow, yeah. Uh you know, we talked about this story a uh years ago because this is this has not been the first time this has come up. And you know, I thought this was a fascinating idea because retail's changing. They got some space there. Uh adding a residential component, I think is pretty interesting. It's pretty exciting, but it can you can see where this could go uh very right or horribly wrong. I I I think in the 1980s this would have been the dream of every teenager alive. Yeah, uh, really. You know, fast times at Ridgemont High, twenty-four hours a day. Um, see, yeah, I know, hate them all. I hate them all. So this, none of this appeals to me at all. But I can but certainly it, see how it, lots of people it would. But it depends, I suppose, what the mall is going to be going forward. Because I think that we're going Bingo. to see 
them all changing dramatically. I think what we probably see in future malls, and I'm no futurist, and I'm not Kresgen or anything, but I think we see a lot more restaurants and like lifestyle kinds of things rather than just shopping. And so if you're someone who, you know, is especially if you're of a certain age where you don't want to do a lot of cooking anymore or you don't want to, you know, you want to be able to do whatever really close and, yeah. you know, and if, and if they do change malls. It appeals to the mall walkers. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, <laughs> if there's more bars and more restaurants and more stuff like that, I, I could see that there would be some people who would very much like it. And then, um, you know, like there's lots of parking in a mall. So there's always yeah. a place for your car. Unlike if you park downtown and you have one of those spots on the street that you have to park 19 blocks from home because there's no spots when you get there after work. Um, easy, apparently, if they do what they're saying at Lime Ridge with this transit hub, uh, yeah. potentially easy. You don't have to be downtown to be mm-hmm. on transit. I mean, everything we're hearing is, you know, you got to be right on the LRT line. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe if you want traffic or if you want to transit and you're willing to put a little more time but not be right downtown, here's an option. I, look, it, it's it's a really interesting thing, but yeah. I, I go back to where I started. It all depends on what the mall is going to look like in a few years. Yeah, it's about designing because not now you're not only designing designing a retail space, you're also designing residence, which is a completely different situation and a, and a, a completely different objective. And malls change, uh, retail changes. You look at the big box stores where we've come from the first indoor mall, uh, you know, Main Street, that sort of thing. And then you look at something like the old Eaton Center in Jackson Square, which is an Eaton Center in every major city, it seems. And then and these things were the greatest things when they were built. But everything is facing inward, nothing facing outward. Now it's, you know, we're looking what we can do with it. So you want to make sure that you don't make those same mistakes in a situation like this. I would, I would assume that people who run companies like Cadillac Fairview that owns and runs Limeridge has learned things over the years and they're applying the things you're talking about because, uh, you know, they, they, they want it to succeed as well. And one other thing, um, we talked about this on our show last night. Esther Paul, the counselor for that ward, was on talking about this very thing. Lime Ridge Mall continues to be the number one taxpayer in the entire city. So whatever yeah. they're doing up there, they have to make this work, Scott, because that's yeah. millions and millions of dollars mm-hmm. to the city that if that money goes away, if this mall doesn't succeed and if the mall eventually fades away – that's millions and millions of dollars that has to be recouped. And where do you think they're going to recoup it? From us. So yeah. we, we have a vested interest, even if you don't want to live at the mall, we all have a vested interest in them figuring out how to make this work. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if this is a slam dunk or if there's some uh, reservation on this project. Well, uh, it'll be a slam dunk if the residences are nice. And yeah. if they are... You know, and if they're priced... Because even that, you know, you think like up there, it's a heavy, den- uh, you know, not necessarily around the mall, but certainly in the area, it's a heavy residential area. So it'll be interesting to see what those residents, how they feel about all this. Yeah, but you know, here's another thing. The location, um, you know, you think, okay, it's right beside a mall. Even if I don't love a mall, it's right near the link. So you can get, if you yeah, have to drive yeah. somewhere... Oh, it's perfect, yeah. There, but it's not but it's not so close to the link that you're going to hear the buzz of traffic all day long, presumably. Yeah. So like there's some things that you look and you go, this this could work. And I assume, again, the people who are going to do this are, are know what they're doing. And, you, you know, we, we could say, I know there's, if this is not the only one in the city they're doing this with either, with mm-hmm. both old balls. Um, would, could you see more up at Lime Ridge eventually? Why not? 
Why not? Why, why, why could we not see one on the other end of the building at some point or on the front yeah. of the building? I mean, we could yeah. see the whole place surrounded by apartments or condos. Who knows? Fascinating idea. It'll be interesting to see how this all pans out. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. Have a great one, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. Danny says, running on a half tank in my 4x4 truck, 212. I'm thinking of buying a horse and a carriage. The horse's can fill the potholes here in Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, baby. Night. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.